This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is marriage, the right person, and God's timing. In the first half, Thomas B. Holman shares his address, the right person, the right place, the right time. Then in the second half, Bruce A. Chadwick speaks on hanging out, hooking up, and celestial marriage. In January of 1972, after eating at a nice restaurant and attending the Osmonds in concert, uh, and they were very popular back then, I asked my wife to marry me. She said no. (laughs) A little over a month later, as I was walking her home from church, she said, well, are you going to marry me or am I going to have to get a job? The job opportunities in the state of Wyoming were not great back then. East Sinclair, Lightning Flats, and Dull Center were the three opportunities that she'd looked at the week before. I began looking much better. She had, very wisely, not accepted my invitation too quickly and been careful to make sure she'd chosen the right man. She understood President Hinckley's counsel. This is the most important decision of your life, the individual whom you marry. Marry the right person at the right place at the right time. Well, where is the right place? When is the right time? And who is the right person? Fortunately, President Hinckley and others have given us inspired counsel concerning these questions, and over 60 years of research in the social sciences adds another witness to their counsel. While the counsel I'm going to share with you today is primarily for unmarried individuals, much of what I say can help married individuals also strengthen, continue to strengthen their marriages. Well, it seems like everyone has advice uh, for people considering marriage. For example, the, the rock group, the Beatles, that you've all heard of from my generation, saying, all you need is love, love, love is all you need. Newsstand magazines claim that good communication is really all you need. And television and film media seem to shout, find someone who is good-looking, someone who really turns you on, then you'll be happy. We actually have a great deal of counsel from better sources than the Beatles, magazines, and television and films. The words of the Savior in the scriptures and the teachings of inspired ancient and modern prophets set us on the right path. This divine and prophetic counsel, supported by over 60 years of research on premarital predictors of later marital quality and stability, will help us know. Let's look then at what the scriptures and general authorities teach about spouse selection, and then I want to offer as a second witness the results of research on premarital phenomena that influence later marital success. But first, I need to make two things clear about what is meant by the right person. First, we sometimes get led astray by movies, by plays, and fiction, and by the idea that there is a one and only somewhere out there with whom we made some kind of covenant to marry in the pre-existence, holding hands and singing as we parted. Um, So, finding a mate is simply a matter of waiting for some enchanted evening, locking eyes across a crowded room, heading off hand in hand to the closest temple, probably singing the rest of the score of South Pacific together, and then living happily ever after. Now, no matter how romantic this idea is, it is not supported by prophetic counsel. President Kimball said this, Soulmates are fiction and an illusion, and while every young man and young woman will seek with all diligence and prayerfulness, 
to find a mate with whom life can be most compatible and beautiful, yet it is certain that almost any good man and any good woman can have happiness and a successful marriage if both are willing to pay the price. Evidently, seeking for a mate is not a matter of waiting for that one and only to walk by and grab you. Second, one of the most important principles we learn from the scriptures to help us choose an eternal companion is articulated by the Savior in Matthew, in chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite! First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Elder Neal A. Maxwell spoke more specifically to those in families, including those in the courtship stage, when he said, quote, If the choice is between reforming other church members, including fiancés, spouses, or children, and ourselves, is there really any question about where we should begin? The key is to have our eyes wide open to our own faults and partially closed to the faults of others, not the other way around. The imperfections of others never releases us from the need to work on our own shortcomings. End of quote. Thus, as you think about the prophetic counsel and the research I will now discuss on choosing a spouse, you need first to apply the ideas to yourself and before you can then appropriately critique another's rightness for you. The first quality many young people look for in a potential spouse is someone with whom they can fall in love which often means someone with whom they feel a strong physical attraction. While love is more than physical attraction to a potential spouse, that's not bad. Indeed, Elder Bruce McConkie has said, the right person is someone for whom the natural and wholesome and normal affection that should exist does exist. Being in love and attracted to a person, of course, is a good start, but clearly not enough. President Gordon B. Hinckley and Elder Richard G. Scott have recently suggested several other factors we should keep in mind. Choose a companion of your own faith. You are most likely to be happy, said President Hinckley. He continued, Choose a companion you can always honor, you can always respect, one who will compliment you in your own life, one to whom you can give your entire heart, your entire love, your entire allegiance, your entire loyalty. Elder Richard G. Scott suggested several what he called essential attributes that bring happiness as we look for a a potential spouse. These attributes are a deep love of the Lord and his commandments, a determination to live them, one that is kindly understanding, forgiving of others, and willing to give of self, with a desire to have a family crowned with beautiful children and a commitment to teach them the principles of truth in the home. Over 60 years of research suggests several factors that both witness and complement the attributes suggested by President Hinckley and Elder Scott. That research suggests what my colleague Dr. Jeff Larson has called the marriage triangle that we need to look at as we choose a spouse. These are the individual attributes and core values of a person. Second, the quality of the relationship we are about to build with the person. And third, the person's past and present circumstances. Let's consider each of these. 
First, we need to know a lot about the person we are thinking of marrying. As Elder Scott notes, the beliefs the person have about family life matter, and research confirms this. The research shows that the more the person values marriage and family life, the better the marriage will be. President Hinckley admonishes us to choose a person we can honor, respect, and give our whole heart, love, allegiance, and loyalty to. The research shows that that kind of person will have a healthy sense of self-respect, maturity, self-control, and good mental and emotional health. President Hinckley further suggests you choose a person who will compliment you. And Elder Scott says our choice should be a person that is kindly understanding and forgiving of others. Thus, we need to find a person not only of good character, but a person with whom we can have a good relationship. Two hallmarks of a good relationship, of a good premarital or marital relationship for that matter, that church leaders have stressed are love and communication. These two things help couples solve problems, resolve differences, and increase agreements on important issues. President Spencer W. Kimball helped a couple on the verge of marriage with this counsel about love. He said, The love of which the Lord speaks is not only physical attraction, but also faith, confidence, understanding, and partnership. It is devotion and companionship, parenthood, common ideals and standards. It is cleanliness of life and sacrifice and unselfishness. This kind of love never tires nor wanes. It lives on through sickness and sorrow through prosperity and privation, through accomplishment and disappointment, through time and eternity. Today, it is a demonstrative love, but in the tomorrows of 10, 30, 50 years, it will be a far greater and more intensified love, grown quieter and more dignified with the years of sacrifice, suffering, joy, and consecration to each other, to your family, and to the kingdom of God. Researchers have also found that the greater the love couples in the relationship have before they marry, the more successful their later marriage will be. However, one searcher reviewed dozens of studies on love and found that there is both immature love and mature love. Mature love, she declared, is the kind of love needed for successful marriage and family life. Love, whether immature or mature, has three aspects. How love feels how you think about love, and how you behave or act when in love. Notice how the characteristics of love, noted by President Kimball, mirror the characteristics that research has found to be the mature kind of love upon which stable, high-quality marriages and family life are built. But the love of which church leaders speak goes beyond the love even the best social science research has discovered. It includes, as President Kimball noted, a consecration to the partner, to family, and also to the kingdom of God. This kind of love is intimately connected to covenants and to our love of the Lord. It's a love that binds them to each other and to the Lord, as Elder Hafen said. This kind of love eschews the lust and selfishness of premarital sex and unlawful cohabitation. This kind of love cares more about the other person than about the self. The way we communicate in dating and courtship usually influences how our partner will feel about us and our relationship. Relationships are established upon the comfort and trust created by sincere communication. Research notes that positive communication, practice in dating and courtship, increases the likelihood of greater commitment, better conflict resolution, and more love between partners in their marriage. 
Good communication begins with a righteous heart. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh, said the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, communication from a selfish heart is generally just manipulation. Elder Marvin J. Ashton adds, If we would know true love and understanding one for another, we must realize that communication is more than sharing of words. It is the wise sharing of emotions, feelings, and concerns. It is the sharing of oneself totally. Well, besides checking out a person's character and your ability to create a good couple relationship with them, you need to also consider past and present family relationships. President David O. McKay taught, In choosing a companion, it is necessary to study the disposition, the inheritance, the training of the one with whom you are contemplating making life's journey. Research supports President McKay's counsel. Good family environments and family relationships tend to lead to good quality marriages by the children. Poor family environments and family relationships often result in poor marriages by the children from these homes. Young adults from divorced families, for example, may experience more depression and anger and have trust and commitment issues as a result of the trauma of the parental divorce. Some individuals, whether their parents divorced or not, may have been exposed to poor models of communication and conflict resolution in their families. Individuals from families that were emotionally cold and distant, chaotic, dangerous, unpredictable, detached, full of conflict or were addictions or violence were chronic problems may need special help in overcoming such an upbringing. However, one whose family background is less than perfect must never feel that he or she is damaged goods and should never and can never have a a good marriage. Nor should such a person be automatically eliminated from another's pool of eligible spouses. We're not doomed to suffer the consequences of our parents' iniquities under the third and fourth generation. In fact, that very scripture that warns of wickedness being passed on unto the third and fourth generation also shows the way out of a troubled family background. Doctrine and Covenants 124.50, for example, tells us that the iniquities of the fathers will be visited upon the heads of the children, quote, so long as they, the children, repent not and hate me, close quote. Thus, repentance and loving the Lord frees us from the sins of our parents. What is most important is that the person who has turned from the wicked traditions of the parents and is striving to keep the Lord's commandments. Now, when it comes to determining the right time to get married, at least two questions need to be asked and answered. First, when is the right time of life to get married? And then secondly, how much time should I spend in the process of going from first date to chosen mate? Let me briefly address these issues. There are many apocryphal stories here at BYU of people uh, dating and within a couple of weeks being at the front door of the temple. Um, I've not known of any of those. Some of you may. But let me just share with you a little bit of what my research, uh, U.S. research, and also some of my research here at BYU has shown. Years of research suggest that marriage has the fewest risks of later problems when people marry in their 20s. Marrying in your teens or into your 30s simply increases the risk factors associated with poor marital quality and stability. Besides the fact that by then the brethren are getting awfully bald and don't have 
Anyway. anyway. <clears throat> President Harold B. Lee helps us understand when the best time in life is to marry. He said this. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to urge you young men to get married, uh, to marry too early. I think therein is one of the hazards of today's living. We don't want a young man to think of marriage until he is able to take care of a family, to have an institution of his own, to be independent. He must make sure he has found the girl of his choice. Now, now listen to this. this. He's talking just to men, but listen how he's giving you again some counsel, not only on when to get married, but what factors you need to take into account. He's found the girl of his choice, for you sisters, found the, the man of her choice. They have gone together long enough that they know each other and that they know each other's faults and still love each other. Please don't misunderstand we, what we are saying, but brethren, think more seriously about the obligations of marriage for those who bear the holy priesthood at a time when marriage should be the expectation of every man who understands his responsibilities. End of quote. Sisters also need to wait until they are mature enough to assume the responsibility of a wife and mother without waiting too long while pursuing less important things. Well, how much time does it take to move through this process of finding the right person and preparing to marry him or her in the temple? Two research projects involving largely BYU students show that they believe or have found what they believe or have found to work for them. These two studies show that the average time from first date the temple marriage is about nine to ten months. I guess kind of September to April sort of stuff. <laughs> some couples move faster, some considerably slower. On average, three to four months of that eight to nine months is the engagement. In a study of LDS couples married eight years, and in another study of single BYU students saying what the ideal length of an engagement should be, the vast majority think that three or four months is about right. Now, please don't take these as goals that you must meet. Um, it may take a little longer. For whatever reasons, it may be a little shorter. But what the brethren and the research do seem to suggest is that you can go too fast or too slow through the process. There are, for example, discernible stages that most couples need to go through on the path from first date to chosen mate. We might call these stages the ABCs of courtship. And there are certain tasks you need to accomplish in each stage. The A is the attraction and acquaintance stage. Research on LDS students by my colleague Dr. Craig Osler in Religious Education shows that initial attraction among Latter-day Saints usually consists of physical attraction or attraction to the person's personality and or attraction to their perceived spiritual qualities. LDS young people are most able to move from this initial attraction to acquaintance and to start a new relationship, according to Brother Osler's research, if both uh, the male and the female are seeking, sending, and receiving what he called interest cues and attraction strategies. Thus, <laughs> relationships generally develop only when you are seeking to know if a person is interested, sending interest cues appropriately, and receiving back or understanding how to interpret the other's person interest in you, or lack thereof. <laughs> one who is deficit in one or more of these processes finds that relationships tend not to develop, and one or both partners can become very frustrated. 
In Dr. Osler's research, he found that the females especially understood what they needed to do. They, uh, and they were willing to teach roommates who were frustrated. Um, and they said, what you do is you touch him on the arm, you look him in the eye, you laugh at his jokes. And within days, he'll be asking you out. Well, many found that to be true. When the seeking and sending and receiving is done in sync, in other words, both people are seeking, sending, and receiving uh, the same messages, the couple then moves to the B or the build-up stage. At this point, the couple gets to know each other and checks out the other person to see if he or she is the right person for them. Research by two of my master's students, Emery Pugmire and Nancy McLaughlin, has shown that generally speaking, LDS males and females move through this stage best when a friendship is developed, first, when both persons feel they are equal partners in the relationship, when their friendship happens much before, if any, physical involvement has occurred, and when both people are relaxed and not worrying about whether this particular relationship is the one, and just kind of let things happen. If these things happen, then the couple is ready to move to the C stage, the stage of consolidation, continuation, and mutual commitment to the eternal relationship. President Hinckley has some counsel about this stage. He said this, I hope you will not put off marriage too long. I do not speak as much to the young women as to the young men whose prerogative and responsibility it is to take the lead in this matter. Don't go on endlessly in a frivolous dating game. Look for a choice companion, one you can love, honor, and respect, and make a decision. We must finally make a decision, as President Hinckley says. In doing this, most Latter-day Saints want a spiritual confirmation that they are making a wise commitment. As you seek a spiritual confirmation, you need to keep at least five things in mind. First, be worthy to receive the inspiration you need. Elder Packer reminds us that if we desire, quote, the inspiration of the Lord in this crucial decision, we must live the standards of the church, close quote. Second, understand the difference, the balance between agency and inspiration. Elder Bruce McConkie said, we must make our own choices and then we present the matter to the Lord and get his approving, ratifying seal. The experience of one young man illustrates what this is, uh, illustrates this. He said, There are two things in my life that I've always felt would be important, a career and marriage. Yet at the time, I didn't feel like I was getting a response. I prayed, Heavenly Father, this is so important. I need to know whether or not it is right. Then, toward the end of our courtship, I went to the temple I was so frustrated because I wasn't getting an answer either way. After praying and waiting for an answer, I got frustrated and gave up. This was when the impression came to me. You already know the answer. Then I, then I realized that God had answered my prayers. The decision to marry Becky always made sense and felt right. I can see now that God had been telling me in my heart and, and in my mind that it was a good decision. And later... At the time of the ceremony, I had another confirmation that what I was doing was right. Third, seek multiple witnesses. The scriptures teach us that in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. A spiritual witness can be confirmed a second or greater time at the altar in the temple, as noted above. In prayer by the Spirit again, in discussions with parents, a bishop, or a trusted friend, 
while partaking of the sacrament or in any number of circumstances. Fourth, learn to discern between inspiration, infatuation, desperation, and a desire to please others. Inspiration comes, as explained above, when one is living worthy, when exercising agency and studying it out carefully, and when confirmed by multiple spiritual enlightenments and peaceful feelings. Infatuation is usually manifested by the immature love that I discussed earlier. That includes great anxiety, possessiveness, selfishness, clinging, and overdependence. Infatuation may be more likely with individuals who lack emotional and spiritual maturity. Now, desperation is often associated with social, social or cultural circumstances that create an atmosphere, at least in the person's mind, of now or never. Pressure from peers, family, and cultural norms may create a sense of desperation that leads to an unwise decision. All your former missionary companions are married, all your roommates are married, or whatever it might be. On the other hand, a desire to get away from an unpleasant family situation or fear of failure in school or work situations can cause someone to look desperately to marriage as a way out of the problem. On the other hand, pressures from peers, family, and cultural norms also may create a situation where you put off marriage for fear that others will think you're just a Molly Mormon or a Norman the Mormon who doesn't understand that marriage is old-fashioned and can ruin your career. Such pressures to marry or not marry often create fears and anxieties that speak so loudly in our minds that we cannot hear the still, small whisperings of the Spirit. Fifth, spiritual confirmation needs to come to both parties involved. When I uh, first returned from my mission, I was talking to one young lady uh, who had been attending school down here at BYU, and she told me this, first-person account, so I assume it's true, that she went with a young man who, on the first date, was carrying a ring with him and offered it to her at that first date. Uh, That was clear back in the 70s. Maybe we were different back then, but I hope that's uh, not happening very much now. Um, One needs to understand that a person needs not feel that he or she or a partner has to get married if he or she, the partner, receives the confirmation. Let me just read to you what Elder Oaks said. If the responsibility is outside the limits of stewardship, you know it is not from the Lord. You are not bound by it. I have heard of cases where a young man told a young woman she should marry him because he had received a revelation that she was to be his eternal companion. If this is true revelation it will be confirmed directly to the woman if she needs to know. In the meantime, she is under no obligation to heed it. She should seek her own spiritual guidance and make up her own mind. The man can receive revelation to guide his own actions, but he cannot properly receive revelation to direct hers. She is outside his stewardship. Now, not all relationships end in marriage, and rightly so. Therefore, we need to understand not only the ABCs of courtship, but also the D and the E stages of courtship. (laughs) The D, deterioration, and E, ending phases of relationship development, are possibly the most difficult to deal with. Relationships, of course, can deteriorate and end very quickly after only a few minutes of acquaintance (laughs) or at any stage of development. But breaking up a relationship that has grown toward a sense of interdependence and possible thoughts of marriage are particularly difficult to end. If it is right to break off a relationship, how can it be done so as to cause the least hurt? 
I believe the revelation given by the Lord to Joseph Smith and contained in Doctrine and Covenants 121 provides excellent counsel not only for strengthening but also ending a relationship. Especially helpful is the counsel contained in verses 41 through 44. And let me read those with you. You'll all remember these. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. Reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love towards him whom thou hast reproved, lest he esteem thee to be his enemy, that he may know that thy faithfulness is stronger than the cords of death. Verses 41 and 42 teach us that we should not attempt to continue a relationship by any unrighteous means. A partner should not be coerced into staying in a relationship, nor should we ever feel coerced. Furthermore, when a relationship should end, the principles articulated in verses 41 and 42 can be a guide for dealing with the hurt and emotions that may result. One may need to be very long-suffering, gentle, meek, and kind with the partner who does not understand or resist the change. The counsel given in verses 43 and 44 may seem extreme, but when considered carefully, is some of the best counsel we can get for ending a relationship. To reprove means to correct, and betimes means early on. Thus, when pure knowledge received by the Holy Ghost helps us understand that a relationship must end, we should correct the situation and the relationship quickly and not let it drag on. The word sharply can mean with clarity, think of a sharp picture, rather than with severity, as it is often interpreted. Thus, while being as loving and kind as we can, we should make it clear that the relationship is ending and why, rather than beating around the bush, hoping the partner will get the message. Again, this must be done in kindness and meekness and love unfeigned, recognizing that even if the partner has hurt us in some way, he or she is a beloved child of God who must be treated in a Christ-like manner. Now, if one is the breakee rather than the breaker, the same counsel applies. This partner you believe you love should not be coerced or forced in any way to continue if he or she does not want to continue. Even if the emotional hurt you feel is strong, you need to back off, not try to hurt the partner back in some way, and allow yourself time to heal. Breaking up is not the end of the world. Great learning and maturity can come from surviving a premarital breakup. If one initiates or goes through a breakup with as much Christ-like behavior and feelings as possible and allows himself or herself to be healed by the peace of the Spirit, that person may then move more readily onto a relationship, but not too quickly, mind you, that can result in an eternal marriage. Our son Matt recently married a, a wonderful young woman from Oregon. And as my wife Linda and I were driving to the reception in Oregon, we reminisced about our own courtship and marriage. And the more we talked, the more I remembered how immature I was when we, we got married. Finally, in bewilderment, I asked Linda, why did you marry me? Her simple answer was, I saw potential. <clears throat> that you may marry the right person in the right place at the right time is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is marriage, the right person, and God's timing. 
We've just heard from Thomas B. Holman. After the break, we'll return with Bruce A. Chadwick for Hanging Out, Hooking Up, and Celestial Marriage. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is marriage, the right person, and God's timing. Next is Bruce A. Chadwick, BYU professor of sociology at the time of this address, titled Hanging Out, Hooking Up, and Celestial Marriage. Interestingly, marriage is very important to nearly all the BYU students. It appears to me is that you have the appropriate goal. Sometimes some of us fall a little short in the implementation, and I want to talk about ways to improve that. Satan still thinks he has a reasonable chance to win the war he initiated in the pre-existence against God's plan. One of his most cunning strategies is to turn away the sons and daughters of God from sealing eternal relationships in holy temples. Satan is giving special attention to you, my young friends, both single and married, to create doubt in your minds about marriage. To create doubts in your mind about your being ready to marry, your failure to find the right one, a fear of divorce, concern about having children, and then he provides alluring sexual temptations. All of these are designed to hinder your entering and keeping sacred and eternal covenants with your companion. Today I want to share with those of you who are single some appropriate ways to establish an eternal relationship. For those of you who are married, these suggestions will assist you in nurturing a strong marriage. One of the joys of teaching at BYU is the opportunity to mingle the scripture with the philosophy of men in a righteous fashion. It is true. No, it's true. I I really appreciate teaching sociology within a gospel context by linking intellect with inspiration. And this morning, I want to mingle a little social science with the scriptures, revelation with the best research and sound reason. And out of this mixture, I have four suggestions that I want to share with you today to assist you in establishing and then strengthening a celestial marriage. The first suggestion is for all Cinderella's and Prince Charming's to throw away your glass slippers. Following Satan's encouragement, contemporary society greatly emphasizes courtship. All of the movies, all the TV programs focus on the conquest, the hunt, the finding each other. And the rest of the story, the most significant part of the life story, is dismissed with these six simple words, and they lived happily ever after. There's a very dangerous misperception embedded in the Cinderella and Glass Slipper Syndrome. And it is the focus on finding the perfect person to marry with whom you will live happily ever after. I'm convinced that the Lord's plan is to find a right one rather than the right one. I admit there may be rare cases where two people covenanted in the preexistence to find each other and to marry in this life. They see each other across the Marriott Center parking lot in the Wilkinson Center, and it is love at first sight. Occasionally, students ask me if I knew my wife in the preexistence. And, you know, what can I say? I picked this woman up on the streets of mortality. Of course I say I knew her. But then I go on to say I knew all my sisters in the preexistence. So no matter who I married, it would have been an acquaintance. <laughs> let, me, let me make clear. This is not church doctrine. It's me being 
It's me being flippant when I don't know the answer to a question, and I don't know the answer to that question. But the First Presidency has affirmed that premortal covenanted marriages, glamorized by Saturday's warrior, are rare indeed. <laughs> but most of us, Heavenly Father, say there are thousands of my sons and daughters attending BYU who are worthy to enter my house and covenant to be your eternal mate. You pick one that you like, who is worthy, and I will give you my blessings. Now, as stated, one of the implications of rejecting the Cinderella syndrome is the realization that there's probably a very large number of individuals with whom you could establish an eternal marriage. In other words, there are actually many whose feet fit nicely within the glass slipper. A second implication is don't wait for others to carry your glass slipper about campus looking for a match. In other words, don't wait for the father to write the name of the person you are to marry on your kitchen wall or to deliver him or her to your front door. Instead, you must be a little proactive and seek someone you like, someone who is worthy, someone who inspires you to be a better person. The Spirit will guide you, but it won't do the courting for you, and it won't make the choice for you. Now, for those of you who are married, the Cinderella mentality that if I marry the right person, we'll live happily ever after, fails to prepare couples for married life. When problems arise, and they do arise in every marriage, a husband or wife is tempted to think, Oh, no, I married the wrong person because I am not happily ever after. And what nonsense. Good marriages are created after you get up off your knees at the temple. Strong marriages emerge out of helping each other obtain your education, struggling financially, dealing with sickness, coping with the shock produced at the birth of your first child. I testify to you that life changes and moves ahead in many unanticipated ways, and you will find yourself changing jobs, moving to a different city, raising teenagers, caring for an aged parent, being retired, and other similar events and activities. And it is from these that eternal marriages are produced. Overcoming these problems, enjoying these highlights as a team are what produce a happy marriage. I loved my dear wife when I married her 40 years ago this summer, but the love I felt for her then is insignificant to the love that I feel for her now after 40 years of trials and triumphs. It's grown through those years. Let me stress, there are no written money-back guarantees for marital happiness. There is no anti-divorce insurance. Occasionally, a spouse changes in ways that maintaining the marriage may become impossible. But I fear, because of the Cinderella complex, that it encourages people to give up on a relationship too quickly and to start another search for the perfect spouse. Now let me say, in rejecting the Cinderella complex, I'm not suggesting that you marry just anyone, but I am suggesting that some of you, some of us, may have raised the bar a little too high. There are a few perfect people in the world. If you get lucky and meet one, he or she probably won't want to marry you. Um, <laughs> but don't despair, that's okay. The traits, the characteristics we're looking for in a spouse will emerge out of the years of experience together. My advice to you is to look for the potential in your spouse. If you haven't found her or him, look. If you have found him, look for the potential there, and then work to achieve each other's desires. In other words, good marriages are earned by experience, not found with glass slippers. My second suggestion is to exercise faith and to have courage in dating and marriage. It is scary to marry. It's scary to stay married when things aren't going well. It's scary to be responsible for children. Some people are just plain afraid of marriage and parenthood. Perhaps their parents or close friends divorced, and they fear the same will happen to them. 
have faith in your God and in his son. They will guide and strengthen. Since, in reality, we are on their errand of creating eternal families and raising righteous children. Perhaps President Ezra Taft Benson said it best in simple words when he encouraged the young adults to, and I quote, replace your fears with faith. Replace your fears with faith. Let me share a scriptural example that I think is applicable to those considering marriage or parenthood. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because they feared to enter the land promised them by Jehovah. They eventually wandered up the east side of the Jordan River. They camped on Mount Nebo and they looked across at the promised land. Moses was instructed to pass the prophetic mantle to Joshua. Joshua was ready to perform a miracle. Let me back that up. Jehovah was ready to perform a mighty miracle to confirm that Joshua was to be the, the new prophet and also to test the courage of the Israelites one last time. A miracle parallel to Moses parting the Red Sea was to demonstrate the Lord's power resting on Joshua. Scriptures tell us that Joshua had the camp of Israel move close to the river and he asked each man and woman to sanctify themselves. Now, in today's terms, that means washing your clothes, turning off trashy TV, catching up your tithing, saying your personal prayers, and maybe even reading the scriptures. Get yourself ready to have the Spirit. Now, the next morning, the Israelites, the children of Israel, were not left as spectators high on the river bank when it was time to part the waters. Rather, 12 men carried the Ark of the Covenant to the water's edge. And then, as the Lord explained, and it shall come to pass... As soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. To faith and courage for those twelve men and the children of Israel who followed to step off the banks into the swirling spring waters. The soles of their feet had to be covered. Then the miracle happened. The waters were stopped. So it may be with you in your quest for an eternal partner or for an eternal relationship. We can't sit in our apartments. We can't spend long hours at work. Nor can we endlessly play video games and wait for the Lord to bring a spouse to the altar for us. Nor can we wait for the Lord to create special feelings of trust and love between our spouse and us. He doesn't magically cause perfect families to appear when there's been little, if any, effort on our part. Waving at group of girls or guys across the cultural hall, driving your spouse to the grocery store once a week, or just remembering the name of your children, are not resting the soles of your feet in the waters of marriage and family life. It takes more effort. During the 1970s, cohabitation became popular, and it now allows couples to kind of ease into marriage. It allows a couple to try out being married without the commitments and responsibility of marriage. Social scientists in general lauded, not here BYU, but others, allotted this emerging social custom and argued that cohabitation would increase marital satisfaction and reduce divorce. They reasoned that cohabit- cohabiting is an opportunity to confirm real compatibility, and thus the marriage that followed would be happier and more stable. This pronouncement was not one of the social sciences' finest hours. The truth of the matter is that 30 years of research has made it clear that couples who cohabit and then wed are less likely, are less happy, and more likely to divorce. Why? Because cohabiting couples were not willing to exercise the faith to make a lifelong commitment. 
And even though they marry, they are still not ready to make that commitment. The social sciences are starting to figure out this marriage thing a little bit better. I've got to say some good things about them after that bad. And one example is a recent book entitled In Defense of Marriage, which analyzes mountains of statistical data that demonstrate that married men and women are happier, healthier, and live longer than single, cohabiting, or divorced men and women. Let me just say in conclusion that marriage is a part of God's great plan, and it's good for both the body and the soul. Now, I realize that not all will have the opportunity to marry in this life, but with faith and courage, most will. It is estimated that by age 45, 95% of all Americans have been married at least once. Now, don't wait till you're 44. <laughs> right now in your 20s, you're your best opportunity. Take advantage of it. But importantly, all righteous men and women will eventually share these blessings. I promise you that if you will pursue marriage and family life with sincere intent, that the Father will bless you and guide you so that you eventually achieve this blessed state. The third suggestion I offer to establish and nurture an eternal relationship is to keep physical intimacy at an appropriate level so as to enjoy the presence of the Spirit and to be worthy to seal your commitment to each other in the temple. Elder Jeffrey Holland gave a talk right here at BYU, and because of its pure, powerful doctrine, he was asked to repeat it in general conference. It is entitled of Souls, Symbols, and Sacraments. If you don't have a copy, ask your campus bishop for one. He has a large supply. It is pure doctrine that lovingly explains how chastity is a necessary condition for eternal life. As I mentioned in my introduction, hooking up, And dating among non-LDS almost always involves sexual activity. Such must not be the case for LDS. I'm happy to report that my research with LDS high school students reveal that their premarital sexual activity is substantially below the national average. But at times it seems like as members of the church we get caught up in the ways of the world and end up adopting them to a degree. We may not be going as fast as the world, but sometimes we're headed in the same direction. And that's a tragedy. Let me illustrate this attitude and orientation with an example. A friend of mine was serving as bishop of a BYU ward. It was a singles ward. And he was teasing the elders quorum president about not being married. And he received the stock reply back from the elders quorum president. I just haven't found the right girl yet. My friend then asked, what kind of girl are you looking for? And the reply was, a girl worthy to go to the temple. But then with a sly grin, the elders quorum president added, but just barely. But just barely. What was this young man saying? He was joking, I hope. But it was sounded like he was willing to keep the strict letter of the law, but wanted to push as close to serious sin as he could get. It is highly unlikely that the Spirit will be companion to anyone holding such an attitude or orientation. It is heading in a worldly direction, away from God's plan. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that you never kiss someone until you kneel across the altar, but rather to keep physical intimacy within the bounds the Lord has set. I don't have the time and any energy to say more about appropriate intimate behavior, but I'm sure your campus bishops frequently discuss this topic. That's their calling. I do want to say a word or two about a different consequence of inappropriate intimacy. Occasionally, couples will say, well, it's a way of expressing our deep love for each other. It actually creates even deeper love. I want to say to you, frequently it destroys a potential eternal relationship. Let me illustrate with a scriptural example. 
This example involves two of King David's children. His son, Amnon, fell in love with his half-sister, Tamar. Same dad, different moms. He thought about her all day, dreamed about her all night. His cousin, his friend, actually his cousin, noticed Amnon's funk and offered to help him in his pursuit of the maid, Tamar. The scriptures say Jonadab, Amnon's friend, was a very subtle man. That means he was a devious man. Jonadab suggested that Amnon fake illness, and that when his father, King David, asked what he could do to help him, that Amnon request that Tamnar be sent to cook him some cakes. Cakes are the Hebrew equivalent of chicken soup. The plan worked perfectly. When Tamnar finished cooking the cakes, Amnon sent away the servants and made a strong advance. Tamnar resisted, saying, and she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not this folly. So she was saying, Don't do this. It's wrong and it's stupid. And she then went on to explain that their father, King David, loved Amnon. He was his favorite son and would give him anything he asked, including her as a bride. But Amnon was beyond reason, was driven by his passion. So as the scriptures say, Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Now what has happened is bad. But now comes the part, the point that I want to make from this example of inappropriate behavior. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. Amnon did not send Tamar flowers, nor did he telephone her to express undying love. He hated her so strongly that he shamed her before the king's court and before all of Israel. Amazing. He loved her. Then a half hour later, he hated her. Why? Tamnar was associated with the guilt he felt for the terrible deed he had done. In his mind, she became the cause of his sin, and thus he hated her. So it is in today's world. A couple may have the potential for a celestial marriage, but they become too intimate. And then the feelings of tenderness and the love, they turn to guilt, and then to dislike, perhaps even to hate. Too much intimacy too early is not the Lord's way. Now, in this example, I have focused on the single members of the church, but let me stress that married couples have the same responsibility to obey the law of chastity and that forbidden love has the same terrible consequences for them. Chastity, which requires virtue in our minds and hearts as well as in our actions, is absolutely necessary to an eternal marital relationship. My final suggestion is appropriate for those seeking a mate, for married couples, and for anyone else. This is just an all-purpose general recommendation suggestion. Many years ago, a couple asked me if I would provide them marriage counseling. Now, I, I resist such requests. I am not a trained marriage counselor, and I really don't enjoy doing it. And actually, I think I'm pretty incompetent. But occasionally, circumstances conspire against me, and I'm forced to do it. And this was one of those cases. I had no choice. I'd worked with a couple for several weeks and had not made any real progress at reducing the anger and conflict in the marriage. One evening, as I waited for him to come to our home, I had a few minutes, and so I opened the Scriptures. I was not looking for answers. I'm not one of those who open the Scriptures and close your eyes and find it and open it up and there's the Lord's at. I just had a few minutes, and I wanted to create a, a framework, a, a mood that I would be receptive to the Spirit. And one of my favorite sections of the New Testament is the Sermon on the Mount. And when I read Matthew 6, 
43 and 44, I was struck with a powerful insight. I did find an answer. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. And here's the part that hit me. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. When the couple arrived, I had the husband wait in the living room while I met with the wife in the family room. When I asked her if we could kneel and pray for her husband, she looked at me with wonderment. When I explained that I didn't want her to pray, that her husband would get run over by a large truck, or that he would develop a disfiguring disease, nor that he would conform to her every wish, but rather for her to sincerely pray for the father to bless her husband with those things that would bring him true happiness, she simply replied, I can't do it. It didn't surprise me. I'd anticipated this response. It's not easy to love your enemy, nor to do good to him or her. But I was hoping we could get to the point that she could pray for him. I asked her if we could kneel and pray and ask she be given the compassion, the mercy, the love necessary to do so. We both took turns voicing a prayer, and after she had shed a few tears, she informed me she was ready to pray for her husband. She then offered a beautiful prayer for him. A remarkable change in her demeanor towards her husband was immediately obvious. There was nothing more to be accomplished. Uh, I ushered her into the living room and invited her husband into the family room, and we repeated the same sequence of event. His initial reaction, like her, was one of shock, dismay. But after offering a sincere prayer for his wife, his attitude and his feelings towards her changed, and some of the earlier love he had for her reappeared. I could see it in his countenance, and he could feel it in his heart. This was our last counseling session, and I think the story had a happy ending for the couple. I haven't seen them for several years, but the last time we had contact, they were still happily married. Now, I don't know whether they ever repeated this simple exercise, but I learned a great lesson from it that has impacted how I live my life. Most of us probably don't like those who hate us, and sadly, these feelings of dislike canker our soul. And amazingly, praying for them, people who hate you, reverses your feelings. Maybe the person still hates you, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that your heart is softened and the Spirit abides with you. And usually once you have changed your attitude and your feelings, that you change your subsequent actions and perhaps it will initiate a reduction of their hatred for you. Perhaps even a reconciliation may occur. Over the years, whenever I've been angry with Carolyn, I kneel and pray for this good woman. She's such a kind and loving person that my anger is usually my own fault. But whatever the cause, whenever I have these angry feelings, I testify to you that they are turned to increase love by sincere prayer. The Sunday I was practicing or editing what I was going to say, and Carolyn said, why don't you let me read and I'll give you some suggestions. So she did. She gave some good suggestions. That night, just as we're going to sleep, I'm in a weakened state. She said, remember that part about how you pray for me when you're angry at me? And I didn't know what to say, but I said, yes. And she said, I heard you share that with our Jerusalem kids when you taught the uh, Sermon on the Mount on the Mount of Beatitudes several years ago. And whenever I'm angry at you, I pray for you, and I love you even more. Works every time. Now, as I laid there, I didn't know whether to be miffed at her for thinking that I had done something worthy to be angry (laughs) or to bless her for her goodness. As I thought about it, I was really tired and sleepy, and if I was miffed, I'd have to get up and pray for her, and I decided that... (laughs) 
that I was just going to go to sleep a happy man. That's, <laughs> and that's usually how I do it. The implications for those of you who are single is to not only pray for yourself in a dating relationship, but also to pray for the young man or the young woman in whom you're interested. Pray for what's best for them. It may turn out that that's not you, but that's okay. The Lord will bless you and good things will happen. This simple action will change feelings between husbands and wives, between mothers and fathers, between children and parents, between neighbors, and so on. When you're angry, when a relationship is stretched to the limit, sincerely pray for the person who at that moment hates you. It will bring a mighty miracle in your feelings and your ability to bear affliction. In conclusion, let me reiterate, these four suggestions are not guarantees of an eternal marriage, but they are consistent with the Lord's plan for His children and probably increase the likelihood. Remember that marriage is essential to eternal life and that good marriages are made, not found. Be courageous in your seeking after an eternal partner. If you found him or her, work together to create an eternal relationship. This is not hard work. In fact, it's rather pleasant and will bring great joy into your life. May God bless you in your studies at BYU. Be sure to study both the sacred and the secular. You have a great opportunity to do both here at BYU. I bear testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially the importance of eternal families. And I share this testimony in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Marriage, the Right Person, and God's Timing, with thoughts from Thomas B. Holman and Bruce A. Chadwick. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.